Hey, hey, this is Yaro, and welcome to Vested Capital, episode number 26, featuring my guest, Joshua Shigala, the co-founder of Voltoro.com and The Standard, and also a leader in the cryptocurrency space. Vested Capital is a podcast about how people make money and put their capital to work. I interview startup founders, angel investors, venture capitalists, crypto and stock traders, real estate investors, and leaders in technology. So this is an episode that will be tough for me to introduce to you because it's expansive. This is a topic that is very current. It's cryptocurrency, decentralized finance, DAO, all the cutting edge stuff going on in that world at the moment because Joshua, my guest, is leading a new startup. I call it a startup. It's a DAO. It's a decentralized finance application. He's basically creating a... a it's so hard to describe these things. You'll, you'll hear me ask some very poignant questions throughout this because I was genuinely not understanding parts of what he was describing. Maybe that's not entirely true. I was understanding it, but I wanted to simplify it. I wanted to understand the practical applications for an everyday normal, I use normal in inverted commas, person who's not, you know, knee deep in technology, certainly hasn't spent so much time exploring the conversations going on in crypto world, you know, all the, the deep conversations with the actual developers and, and the leaders in the space, you know, they understand what's going on, maybe. <laughs> but for most of us, you know, we don't really know even the basics. I feel comfortable with the basics. I understand decentralized blockchains and currencies and tokens and some of the ideas that are around different tokens that I've heard about on other podcasts and just learned about through my own studies. DeFi itself is a very complex space. But as Joshua pointed out, DeFi in terms of uh, volume of transactions now is so large, it's bigger than some of the largest well-known fintechs like Revolut, if you might know, or Revolut, depending on how you like to say it. It's a massive European fintech company that allows you to buy and sell stocks and transfer money, buy and sell cryptocurrency as well. So this is something so huge that the mainstream public really doesn't understand. And that's part of the problem. But that's also why this interview is so important, because Joshua, through his life story as an entrepreneur, and just through his explanations of various aspects of cryptocurrency and the technology behind it, and the philosophy behind it as well, will educate you, will open up your eyes to what's really going on. I certainly feel clearer on a lot, especially what he's doing. So just a bit of a summary of what you're going to learn in terms of Josh's story, since as always with Vested Capital, we do go back in time to learn about our guest and you know what they're known for. It was fun for me to do this part because Josh actually grew up in Australia, where I grew up as well. And he worked in design eventually for a number of the television stations that I know very well from Australia, like Channel 7 and Channel 9. So he worked on TV shows, graphic design, or maybe really more video design, like video graphics. He actually, as he explained in this interview, was the creator of one of the very first ever short films using uh, computer-aided graphic design, which I think is very cool. Unfortunately, he lost that, um, but he's still looking for it. Maybe one day he'll find it. And funnily enough, this connects with the cryptocurrency world in a strange way. So eventually through his work in the graphics world, he became entrepreneurial and had lots of side gigs going on. I'll let you listen in to hear about all of those. And one of the side gigs was a company called SwapStyle, which essentially was a fashion swapping service. I think his wife at the time was a co-founder, or at least helped him start it. And it sounds like it's a fashion startup, and it certainly was. But 
because of the way it was being used, it forced Joshua, Josh, to start looking for some kind of credit system within the company. So people would come and list their clothes they wanted to trade and they'd look for other clothes they'd want to trade for. Unfortunately, it was very infrequent, you know, to find a good trade match at the right time between two people. So inevitably, you need some kind of internal currency of value that you could swap clothes for and then use that currency later to buy from other people who were listing clothes. It's a common challenge for marketplaces like this. So because of that need, Josh dived into the world of digital currency, which then led to the world of blockchain and cryptocurrencies and all the cypherpunk movement. So he dived in, learned what would be the best version of an online currency, which clearly was cryptocurrency. Because of that, he got exposure to Bitcoin back in the super early days. Even Satoshi Nakamura, the creator of Bitcoin, or perhaps creators, we don't know, as Satoshi disappeared, was active then. So he was that early. In fact, he even had some early Bitcoin Unfortunately, he lost a lot of his early cryptocurrency when the Mt. Gox collapse happened. For those versed in the world of cryptocurrency history, you will know that Mt. Gox was possibly the first exchange that was very, very popular. Unfortunately, it got hacked and a lot of the, the currency was stolen by the hackers. And because of that, Josh experiencing losing his cryptocurrency, he wanted to come up with a more stable and reliable and verified backup exchange for cryptocurrency, which made him look towards gold as a good store of value to kind of back up the value of the cryptocurrency, which then led to the creation of Voltoro.com. So we spend quite a bit of time talking about Voltoro because it was and is, it's still very much a successful company, if a bit niche, a very new cutting edge idea. So he wanted to create a platform where you can take your Bitcoin or your cryptocurrencies and exchange it for gold. And it had to be real gold, gold sitting in a vault somewhere. So we had to connect these different ecosystems, the gold system of buying gold and holding gold and you know verifying it and validating it and making sure it's there and remains there and is safe and secure, along with the very decentralized aspect of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, and then creating an ability to exchange those at whatever the market rates are great story to hear all that how that was created definitely recommend you you know pay attention to that part and i asked some great questions because frankly i was naive how this all works on the back end i was super interested on how do you get gold to talk to crypto from a technical standpoint and make that kind of exchange work which unfortunately also means you have to use the banks that was a sad aspect of this i think given that we want to decentralize and move away from the banks and fiat currency but it's very much an entrenched part of our system and since gold is very old and, and entrenched in that kind of financial world you do have to enter the traditional banking system in order to exchange gold you know, I say that I, I'm going to come across like an advocate for uh, crypto and, you know, the destruct, destruction of the, the old banking system. And I am in some way. I, there's certainly a part of me that's frustrated with the current the banking model, especially when it comes to simple things like transaction fees, currency exchange fees, just fees for holding my money. I think that's terrible. And all the intermediaries between banks when you're sending from one to the other or any kind of transaction you do, they're all taking little pieces of it. And then recently I went through the experience of simply transferring my crypto a small amount from Ukraine to me here in Canada. And it was just so straightforward, you know, went from a wallet of a, a friend of mine in Ukraine who had the cash I had there and turned it into crypto and then sent it to my wallet and it appeared. And that's it. No banks taking a little piece of it, no need to go to a branch. It's just a wallet I have, private 
cold storage and a wallet. He has private cold storage. Amazing. The future, very simple example of the benefit of crypto. The story continues, of course, with Josh, where you then moved on to the current project, The Standard. Now, this is challenging for me to describe. We spent a lot of time breaking down a great example of what The Standard is. In a nutshell, it allows you to borrow money against your assets without using any kind of third party. No need to go to a bank or a lender. You simply can enter what is called a decentralized financial DAO and through what the standard is creating. Bear in mind, this is not actually out yet. We talked about a, a concept for an MVP that will be coming out soon. Soon could be six months or it could be several years. We don't know exactly when, but that is what Josh is working on right now. And the standard will then allow you to you know, put up your gold bullion or put up your Bitcoin and then borrow against it. So you can always have a float amount of money that you can actually use in the real world while still holding on to your cryptocurrency or your gold. So it's, I think, a very useful service. I actually would probably use it right now if it was available. I had a lot of questions around the security around this. I tried to you know, act like I was the general public, I guess I am, to try and verify parts of what I would consider risky, just in my, my basic understanding of technology, like do I trust the owners and creators? Like even do I trust Josh and the team at The Standard and the code they're writing? Can I trust the different platforms that are talking to each other? The cryptocurrency exchange, the DAO that offers this service, you know, the interface, how well can it be protected from hackers? Is anyone skimming, you know, some kind of fee somewhere or controlling the wallets, the addresses, you know, anything I transfer there will it just disappear? All these fears, which he, you know, attempts to answer. And there is no good answer yet in the sense nothing is foolproof. But like most new technologies, this is going to be a case of over time trust becoming more standardized, more general across the population as more people use it. And it just becomes, you know, more tested, more robust, more the code has been refined over time it's shown to be impervious that's the hope of course and then it becomes a standard so as it is named the standard great story that kind of sums up josh's business story that we explain thus far over the oh, almost 20 years of his life that we kind of covered in that maybe more 25 years of his life so that whole story is this podcast but as i said at the start of this very long intro to go along with a long interview this is not just about Josh's story. This is about him explaining lots of key concepts and us using some simple examples to explain how these new forms of decentralized finance might be used in our everyday lives. So I think that you will find very, very helpful. Okay, so that's my intro. The interview is coming up in a second. But of course, I have to mention the sponsor for today's episode. I should also say, I mentioned the sponsor for today's episode to Josh off air afterwards. And he was very excited about this. I was, I was glad to hear that. Another founder who can see the benefit of outsourcing your email to someone else. I do feel funny talking about such a modern technical topic of decentralized finance and cryptocurrencies. And now I'm switching to a very old, in terms of internet years, technology email, something we still use today, something that a lot of humans on this planet are spending hours a day just sitting in there, replying to messages, sorting messages, ignoring messages, feeling stressed about missing out of what's going on in that inbox or not replying fast enough. And of course, using your inbox like a to-do list that kind of controls your life, all things that should not be the case. So, I recommend if I described you, you consider hiring a virtual executive assistant to manage your email for you and also all the associated tasks like calendar management, scheduling, interacting with people, inbox management for your social media inboxes, 
replying to comments on social media, managing communities, data entry, uh, all the basic things that you're probably doing right now, uh, controlling software, record management for your customers, maybe invoicing, all these basic things that you don't have to do if you just hire one of our virtual executive assistants at inboxdone.com. They're all fully vetted, tested, hired, trained, by us internally, we have a 10-step hiring process, including a course that we run all new hires through before they begin working with clients. We also assign two people to every client, so you get a backup. You always have two executive assistant, virtual assistants uh, working with you. They're dedicated to you. And yeah, it's a, a business that's been running for almost uh, four and a half years now. We've got clients across all kinds of amazing industries. I don't know if we have a cryptocurrency client yet. So maybe if Josh becomes a client, he might be our first cryptocurrency founder. But we have clients like accountants, bookkeepers, uh, car sales, restaurant owners, online coaches, venture capitalists, doctors, dentists, all over the place. Everyone has email. Everyone needs to break free. So if that's you, head to inboxdone.com and book a discovery call to get some help with your email. And we'd love to help you. All right, let's dive in now to this very extensive interview with Joshua Shigala. Joshua, thank you for joining me today. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure, Yara. Yeah. So as we were talking about off air, we have, well, I have a lot of things I'm interested in you because your history as working in Australia, you're obviously here because you are doing some things in crypto, which is huge and very popular right now. And, and I haven't had a lot of guests talk crypto. So I love to sort of open up some of the uh, mysteries around that topic. I mean, I know you were around early Bitcoin, Mt. Gox, obviously. It's funny because I played Magic the Gathering when I was a oh, teenager yeah. <laughs> and Mt. Gox obviously started as a Magic the Gathering website before we became a crypto exchange. So there's so much yeah. I want to talk about, but before we dive into history, I'd really just like a good summary. So Voltoro is the longer running company you run now. And then the standard, yeah. I feel like is a spin-off kind of project, new business. Do you want to just introduce those two for us? Yeah, sure. So Voltoro was the very first, uh, after Mt. Gox collapsed, I really wanted to focus on building an exchange where the exchange was ultimately transparent, like radically transparent. Because at the time, Mt. Gox, for all those listeners that don't know, was one of the first, well, was the first exchange for Bitcoin. And at the time, there was a whole lot of Bitcoin things that were just crashing and going, disappearing, getting hacked. And I, I thought, this is just insane. You know, it wasn't just me that lost a lot of money. It was like, we're in a movement. We're in a movement to change money fundamentally. And these greedy bastards are, are ruining it for the whole movement. And so, yeah, that was the whole idea was to not only have an ultimately transparent exchange, which I, I invented this thing called the Glassbooks Protocol, which we can talk about later, but also implement that we start trading against other rare assets like gold and silver rather than trading with fiat which is the whole reason we're getting away or getting into Bitcoin was to get away from fiat. And so it was sort of a shame to see everyone just trading against USD or, or yen instead of actually trading against other rare, rare numbers versus rare metals. It's a great combo. So that's, that's where that came from. And then the standard is a protocol, uh, a DeFi protocol, which is sort of an infrastructure protocol because there's a lot of gold, like 10 trillion and five of that is in personal hands, just sitting in vaulting facilities around the world, gathering dusk and storing value. So we wanted to give that more value by allowing people to use that to collateralize smart contracts and issue themselves a fiat pegged stablecoin 
backed by gold and crypto, kind of like Maker, if anyone knows that, but the next generation of that, basically. Okay. Yeah, definitely want to dive into both of those two, but I'd love to maybe cover them when we hit them in your story. So yeah, we were kind of discussing off air before we hit record your last name, Shigala, and the spelling, yeah. and you said it might be Polish. I said it sounded Italian. We don't really know. Were you actually born and raised in Europe or what's the family history? I was born in Berlin. And the thing is, I was born stateless to uh, really? my father, who was also stateless. And so he because he was born stateless, because he didn't know his father, he could then travel back and forth across the Berlin Wall. And so he had this special sort of passport where, hey, you're allowed in the East, you live in the East, your mother lives in the East, but you're also allowed to go because you're actually not East Berliner or Berliner at all. So, oh, wow. you know, uh, being born stateless, I guess I'm a natural born anarchist. I don't know. Yeah, you're, you're decentralized <laughs> so, at birth. That's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But then, you know, mother, uh, she's Irish, so she got me a British passport and then I've been, you know, uh, got different passports and stuff now. And, and uh, so that's all good. But yeah, it, it, it's a weird thing when you think about not belonging to any state, when you start to think about what the role of a state is in protecting the, its citizenry and its borders or its systems. It's always a fascinating thing. And I, maybe that had a part to play with my fascination in Bitcoin. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, how could you not sort of see the dots, but connecting the dots there between stateless versus, you know, fiat currencies, I was attached to a state. So yeah, yeah interesting. And, and is your dad, like, did he eventually get a passport or what happened to him? Yeah, funnily, like he's full Berliner and he would have to go to the Auslander Behörde, which is like the immigration place. And he would stand in line helping all these people that didn't know German to fill out their forms because he was a full German, but but he had to be there to like, you know, renew his things. Oh, wow. But yeah, he, he finally got uh, German citizenship. Okay, okay. and. Uh, yeah, went so there. you grew up then in Germany? Was that where you went to school no, and studied? No, no, I grew up in Australia, uh, hence okay. the wacky accent. But basically, my mother moved and immigrated to Australia when when I was like five or six, and from there I just sort of yeah we stayed there and grew up in South Australia down south. Then yeah, moved and lived in Sydney for a while. Worked worked there and got into special effects. Basically, I was working in special effects and three D animation when it was still SGIs. <laughs> these silicon, <laughs> big silicon graphics machines. They're, for those that don't know, those these boxes were like the size of fridges, and uh, like Toy Story was made on that, the original Toy Story. And uh, when I first got to Sydney, I, I got asked to uh, work on a, a project called The Matrix, and I was like, mm -hmm. oh, "Yeah, I'll do a little bit on that." I didn't even know what it was. I was just thought, oh, "Yeah, I'll do this, like helping a friend out doing the sine waves on the Sentinels." Oh. And uh, and then after, and I didn't ask for more work on it because I just thought, yeah, I'm, I'm looking for actually doing advertising. I want to do film, I want to do more advertising. And because the fast turnaround, then you're doing something new every every month and it's more fun than film. You're like working for a year on something. Uh, and anyway, like a year or something later, I go to the cinema and watch this film and I'm like, why didn't I do more on that? That's just <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I remember watching The Matrix, the first one, and I was like, that bridge is really familiar with the rain. Oh, I know. Like, it's right next to the station in, in Sydney. So yeah, <laughs> it's um, it's fun when you're in the city where something was filmed. But wow, you really missed out on the chance of like, I mean, it's funny too, because The Matrix is so much about, you know, illusions of structures and, you know, a reality yeah. not being real. So all these kind of indications uh, towards what you're working on now. Yeah. W with your 
I don't know if it was a passion or like just an interest or you decide to go into digital design because it was a way to make money. Was that your, like, are we talking graduating from university and then you went into that career? Is that, or is it before that? No, I, I, I left school earlier because I'd had enough of it. It just was too slow and annoying for me. And I, I went into real life and I got into okay. real life and went, man, this is shit. <laughs> Sorry, excuse my <laughs> French there. This is crap. I yeah, better go back to school. And I went to the sort of adult reentry after a year of being out. All of a sudden you're an adult and you're like, ah, oh, uh, okay. Um, and I came across this little 3D animation suite in the school, which was on these really, uh, what are they, like, like Pentium something or other. Anyway, they had this uh, program called 3D Studio. It was before 3D Studio Max, if anyone knows that. It was like the predecessor on DOS. And you could like create a sphere and instantly shade it with a light. And I thought, that's amazing. Like I just <laughs> fell in love with the fact that you could take a sphere and just instantly render it and then animate it with some keyframes and this and that and the other thing. And I just really fell down a deep rabbit hole with that. Absolutely loved it. Then uh, ended up making Australia's first animated short film on that with another guy. And wow. then what was that called? it was called Under Pressure. It was called Under Pressure, but you, you won't find it. It was just our little thing. And I've been actually trying to find it. And yeah, it's it's really... It's gone. <laughs> I want to release it again. I thought but, YouTube has everything. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was this five minute thing, but it took a whole year to make. Yeah, it, it really sort of launched me into into that side of special effects thing. And there wasn't really any school you could go to back then for this stuff. I mean, I know they had 3D Studio at this adult reentry school, but it wasn't really anything accredited. It was just like, hey, we happen to have this software. And I, I just, you know, would stay there. I dropped every other class and would stay in this little lab for days on end. Yeah, that's cool. You sound like me when I was 18 and I discovered HTML and I was trying to design websites myself and you just sit there trying to move a pixel, you know, one left or right. And it's like, waste of time, but it's so much fun when you're doing it. You know? Yeah, yeah, right. Absolutely. Now, I can tell your career based on, I know your, your LinkedIn here, you definitely, like you continued in, in animation and design for a long time, but you transitioned to, what, to television. Is that what happened? Because I see an awful lot of TV stations I recognize growing up in Australia yeah. myself too, Channel 9, Channel 7. So how did that happen? Yeah, I mean, I was in post-production for a long time and then TV pulled me in to be head of their special effects departments. And yeah, so I worked in television then doing their promos and special effects in certain shows and things that were needed to be done. And yeah, in the meantime, though, I always had multiple startups going in the background because I who wants to be bored? So I, I had uh, I had this sleuth of startups that were happening in the background. And when you're young, you can basically deal with four hours sleep, so <laughs> weeks on end. So right. yeah, these startups really led me down a passion of alternative economies, especially swap style, because I really wanted to create a platform where people could swap things rather than buying and selling, because I just felt like, especially after 9-11, happened. I really deep dove into, you know, not only into like the hardcore conspiracy stuff, but also that kind of led to understanding banking and money and fundamentals of money. And, you know, I think it's something that's definitely not taught in school of where does money come from? What is money? Is it is it backed by gold? Where does gold get its value from? What is it? And, and these sort of fascinating questions. And then that led on to reading Mises and all of the Austrian economists and 
and really understanding boom and bust cycles and and all of this stuff, I just found it really extraordinary because it's stuff that you just don't get taught, sort of hidden. I'm kind of curious about the connection then because swap style, which you just mentioned, is in the fashion space, right? Like it's clothing swap. And then I think before that, you actually also had some another startup, a fashion boutique. I'm not sure I'm seeing in the history here. So you clearly had an interest in fashion as well. As well, not really. I mean, my, my girlfriend at the time or wife, she was right into it. And we started Swap Style before the fashion boutique. Oh. And, but the thing was that Swap Style was actually, when we engineered it, it was to swap anything for anything. Uh-huh. And this is a really interesting thing for anyone that's building a startup is that when we did anything for anything, we had all the mechanics and all the categories and everything like that. No one took up the story. They're like, who wants to swap? Uh, I don't get it. I mean, you got to think this this is the start, like very early internet days. So people didn't quite get it. And as soon as we just went and dropped everything else and just made it women's clothes, Mm -hmm. all of a sudden, every woman's magazine wanted to do articles about it. And Mm -hmm. it was so fascinating. We had had TV shows in Fox over in America and all the women's mags just doing stories because it was all of a sudden their niche. And so sometimes, just like Amazon started in books only, Mm -hmm. sometimes it's really good as an early startup to really focus in on one thing and then get those niche publications to talk about you. And how did it go? And just to clarify too, so SwapStyle was a place where like a website you go to swapstyle.com you would list your own clothing for swap and then other people would list theirs and you would just communicate directly and say will you swap this for that and then send it in the mail that was the basic idea what was your monetization model with that (laughs) was basically uh let's see what happens actually what (laughs) happened is that i realized very quickly that swapping is a really terrible way of doing anything in terms of a marketplace because Let's say I really love your shirt, Yaro. Like, I'd be like, let's swap. And you say, oh, you know, I don't like anything of yours. And then the deal falls through mm-hmm. and be stuck with that. And that was it. Even though there's an entire marketplace, the deal would fall through and nothing else would move. And so I already started looking then at some sort of like credit system that wasn't based on money. I, I was trying to figure out how can we... And that's actually when I started stumbling across some of the work that the cypherpunks were doing online Hmm. to figure out decentralized money. And the writings were very obvious that this is a problem that can't be solved, which was the double spend problem. You know, when I send you a JPEG, you don't know if I've sent you the JPEG and I've deleted it. Like it's just a (laughs) digital things are are abundant. And, Mm -hmm. And so this problem was unsolvable. Every bit of literature that I read said it was unsolvable, but these crazy guys kept on working at it and I kept an ear to the train track, so to speak. And that's, I guess, how I came across Satoshi's white paper so early on. Okay, interesting. So you're making me think of house swaps right now because I've been getting some ads on my my social thrown at me about I swap my house and I go live in someone else's house. Yeah. And for the same problem you just mentioned, like, well, what if I don't want to live in their house at the same time they do, or, you know, I want this person's house and there's a third person involved, we might all want to swap. So, of course, naturally, they've created a, a credit system where you can mm-hmm. basically give your house to someone else, you get credits in the system, and then you can spend those credits on other rentals. So, I can imagine for clothing, something similar. But 
if I was presented that idea today, I would say, well, of course you would tokenize that and you wouldn't be a credit. It'd be a token you'd get, mm. you know, because it'd just be, you know, the natural choice today. But going back mm. in time with like sort of January 2001, like you said, all the way up to, at the end, I don't know if you closed it down or you, or just, you know, sold it or whatever, 12 years later, did that whole business, was it your main income stream during that time and and or did you what happened no i was i was still doing 3d work freelancing okay. and and doing some advertising and channel branding and stuff like that so i'd continue working a little bit but yeah eventually sold it to someone else who then just let it die basically okay. Okay. <laughs> unfortunately but sad but uh, you know, <laughs> yeah yeah but you know it is what it is and it really open the gates to understanding money because one of the things you know the obvious idea is building a credit system into the centralized database but first of all i knew that e-gold got taken down by the government because the government doesn't like you making fake money like mm -hmm. it doesn't mm -hmm. like people competing with their money that's really what bitcoin broke is the fact that there's no one to go after. And this is why Satoshi left, because it was an extremely dangerous thing to do. You're taking on the central banking system of the world. You're taking on the petrodollar. You're taking on, you know, the US arguably went to major wars to protect their oil settlement in dollar monopoly around the world. There's stories of like Gaddafi wanting to do gold settlements. Saddam also wanted to do the similar things. And you know, where are they now? But mm -hmm. Satoshi really solved this. And now I feel like people could do a centralized credit system. I mean, you see that already with like stock photo sites and stuff, you buy credits and then you right. spend those, they're pegged right. to a dollar. But I didn't want to create something with swap style, which was then emulating a central, who am I to like print new credits? Then everyone has to trust me that I'm not just printing credits and buying myself stuff on my own platform or, right. you know, kind of like Tether might be doing. <laughs> but uh, th this is the thing is that I really wanted to build something else. And this is what led me down the path of finding these crazy anarcho type people that were trying to build something totally different. And it really resonated with me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's such an important point because there's so many examples of a platform or a community that have their own virtual currency or credit. I mean, you can take massive multiple online player games where they have an internal credit system and they can buy and swap their items and so on. And that functions okay. You were making me think of, I can't remember specifically what it was, but I listened to a podcast about WeChat and sometime mm. early on in WeChat's life, an internal credit system was built and the Chinese government had to say, no, you can't do that because people are using this now more than our actual mm -hmm. currency. So they had to shut it down. But it is yeah. interesting that this is what led to your exposure to cryptocurrency and the cipher movement. So connect the dots here. You were in digital design yourself. You were running Swap Style as a side project, possibly with your then wife. You discover this world of crypto and blockchain, but it's still super early. Like I feel like 2012, correct me if I'm wrong, was sort of the Mt. Gox or even later than that, right? 13, we collapsed. Yeah. What happened? Like, because you, you were in Mt. Gox too. So how did you finally get yourself involved in that land? Yeah. So I started uh, in late 2010, really deep diving Bitcoin. And the only thing you could really do was buy alpaca socks from some guy in, uh, I think it was somewhere in Europe. And there was Mt. Gox. Silk Road had just sort of started as well. It was like, wow, this is nuts, amazing. You know, if suddenly the deep web had a function. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you look at it from a philosophical rather than some sort of moral scope, 
it really was an interesting time because not only are you disrupting government's sort of ability to control money and inflation, but you also had the ability for people to voluntarily trade things that governments might not like. Whether you like or dislike that, it's a really interesting lens to start looking at how society, if you take that as first principles and and project that out, what would happen? And one of the things that we really saw happen was the fact that drug marketplaces started becoming really safe because all of a sudden the consumer could give feedback, negative feedback to drug dealers. Like when was the last time you, you met some drug dealer down the back alley and started shouting at everyone walking past, this guy's selling crap, cut with whatever, you know, you would just get a bullet. So this was the first time people, and, and you know, anyone that was able to use Bitcoin at the time, uh, you know, it was very technical. It was a very, very rudimentary system. So you had to be very technical and nerdy. So a lot of the people using Silk Road were like university students that had access to all this testing equipment. So they'd like buy a product on these dark webs and then test it at the universities and then write feedback like, well, there's this much agent of that and became really pure and people could like, (laughs) but it was a fascinating sort of just to watch this play out going, wow suddenly this trade is becoming a lot safer because people are getting better product. Plus you have to sell good stuff to just like eBay to be able to sell more expensive because you've got a good reputation and anyone coming in new would have to like basically have no profit because they have a new account. So there was this really interesting dynamic that was playing out. And of course, with that comes really negative, constant news and headlines and arguments against this sort of weird thing that's just for drug dealers or it's just a tulip bubble or it's just a there was you know all these typical arguments that you got back there but it was an absolutely fascinating time to seeing this new wacky technology full of people that were ideologues and nowadays there's a lot of everyone and their dog has has got a little bit of an investment in this but Back then, it was really uh, people that were fascinated in either the technology and cryptography, either in ideology of like anarchic ideology or even libertarian. It wasn't anarchic, it was libertarian. And so you would have these extraordinary conversations online about philosophy and, mm-hmm. you know, what other community d- does that happen in really? Mm-hmm. And so really, really um, interesting stuff sort of played out. Sorry, I, I went a little bit away no from you. Well, the only thing I don't know here is what was your role in, like, were you participating at this point or just you know, having conversations? What was your, your job? I was, yeah, like, I mean, I, I, ha- I had an account, uh, of course, in uh, Bitcoin Talk and stuff. Satoshi was still around, but, you know, I didn't really, I, I just sort of was doing my own thing. I was head of, uh, you know, the, the 3D at Channel 9 at the time and, I just had a lot on, but I was definitely already working on it. So we implemented then Bitcoin into swap style pretty quickly. Oh, wow. But the thing was, no one knew what <laughs> I'd get these yeah. emails like, what's this Bitcoin thing? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, and I'd have like a page explaining it. It was way too geeky because you didn't have seed phrases. So backing up was really hard. You didn't have hardware wallets. The original QT wallet was just like this, which was the reference wallet of Bitcoin. That was the only wallet you could have. It was a complete nightmare. People kept on losing money and, you know, you mm-hmm. needed to be full on tech head to use okay. it. But it was fun throwing it in there. So, okay. So, so <laughs> I feel like there's a couple of years between this and you starting Voltoro. So 
is it a case of you're just living your life, you're working at Channel 9, someone had bought Swap Style, so that was no longer on your plate. You're exploring that underground world, you know, on your nights and weekends. And then yeah. I'm guessing, if correct me if I'm wrong, your source of crypto at the time being Mt. Gox, then it imploded. And that's what then triggered you to get into it. Is that kind of the, the chronology of your journey? Yeah, I loved building little things and little weird applications like price checkers or, you know, just stuff that's kind of rudimentary. And But yeah, it was really after seeing multiple things collapse, like there was a service called instawallet.org, I think it was in .org. Anyway, it allowed you to, like, as soon as you open that website, it would generate a wallet address and the URL would be your wallet. So you bookmark that. And you didn't need a password, nothing. You just sort of instantly have one. And when you go back to your bookmark, there it is. If you lose your bookmark, it's gone. And people were just using it. Of course, that was centralized service. All of a sudden, they got hacked. I say that because they probably just ran off with all the funds. And, you know, back then, uh, people were throwing around uh, hundreds of thousands of these tokens because they're really sort of just funny playthings. And mm -hmm. They were so cheap, right? Like... That's the point too. Like it'd be billions of dollars now, but back then it was hundreds or thousands of dollars. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. And so it was really that I had enough of all these people running away with people's money and I wanted to build something that was truly transparent. So yeah, I, I, I'd actually moved back to Germany at this stage to spend some time with my father because, you know, I'd never really spent much time with him and, and he was here. And so I wanted to, you know, get to get to know him better. And You speak German, I, I assume? Yeah, yeah, I speak German. I mean, I didn't at the time and now I speak very well because I've been here for like nine years, 10 years almost. Okay. But really what I wanted to do was build something that was ultimately transparent and also removed the banks from the equation and had a bank independent exchange that could trade between Bitcoin and physical bullion that was held in high security vaulting facilities, top tier facilities that were fully insured and fully audited. And this was something that banks can't do. Banks can't get fully insured or even fully audited because these institutions run on fractional reserve. You, you really don't know how liquid they are. And this is the beautiful thing about gold. It's just a bar of metal sitting in a vault, like fully, really, really primitive money. You know. <laughs> and the great thing is an auditor comes in and counts it, looks at the serial numbers. There's a chain of custody. So you know that it went from the mine to the smelter to, and it's never seen the sun straight into the vault. And these are LBMA good delivery bars, they're called. And that, that it just sort of means that you can absolutely be assured that it's 99.99% and that you could easily, it's very liquid. You know, the gold market's the second most liquid market in the world under the effects market. So it's, if, if it's like never seen the sun, because mm. then it's, you don't need to check it again. It just sort of flips and floats around. So, right. so this was the idea behind Voltoro uh, after the Mt. Gox hack was really to allow people to hey, I just got paid in Bitcoin. I'll hedge it in gold because I run a TV shop, let's say. I sold a TV for Bitcoin and I'll hold it in gold. And then when I need to restock, I'll sell the gold back to Bitcoin. And hopefully my supplier takes Bitcoin as well. But it was a way to really hedge out the volatility of Bitcoin in another rare asset. So these you know, rare numbers versus rare metals, it's a, it was kind of a marriage made in heaven in my eyes. Funnily enough, Bitcoiners couldn't stand gold and gold people couldn't stand Bitcoin. And I never <laughs> understood it. I was like, what are you guys fighting about? There's the enemy right there. It's called yeah, central yeah. banking. <laughs> I was actually thinking so many times I've heard podcasts where, yeah, there's a gold 
believer and a Bitcoin believer, and they both, you know, the store of value argument, that's what Bitcoin might yeah. be the best case use case for it. So it's replacing gold, therefore, but you're right, it doesn't have to, it's just another store of value. And you are the first person I've actually hear, or at least create a company that's specifically about the cross exchange between those two commodities. So that's interesting. But yeah. by the way, you described that initial idea for it, it was well and truly for already converted Bitcoin users, right? Like they were receiving yeah. the Bitcoin, then coming to Voltoro and saying, I want mm -hmm. to basically back this up with gold. And then yeah. vice versa, you could take out Bitcoin, you know, and the gold goes back. So can you tell me, you're in Berlin, I'm assuming, you have this idea. Yeah. Well, what, certainly when you have the idea, I wouldn't even know how to begin doing what you just thought of as an idea. Like, do you go find a gold supplier and then an engineer who can then make a exchange <laughs> that works with this gold supply? Like, what's the engineering yeah. of this process? Yeah, I mean, this is the thing, right? Is that's why I love the Steve Jobs quote of, you know, stay hungry, stay foolish, because you sort of foolishly think, oh, I've got an idea, let's do it. And, yeah. <laughs> and then it's really the heart of hard things is building a startup around stuff. But basically, I was lucky enough that my half brother over here is an absolutely brilliant engineer. And he single handedly coded the exchange. And then also way down the track later on, we were the very first exchange in the world to implement the Lightning Network for the same reason that I could say, hey, Philip, you know, can you chomp on this problem for a while? And he was like, oh, okay, and then, <laughs> here it is. So uh, that was really handy. But also being in Berlin and it's just a jump, skip and a hop away from Munich, which has uh, got a lot of the gold industry in Germany. And then another hop, skip and jump away from Switzerland, which is obviously highly renowned for its gold industry and also London. So it's really that whole area between the London bullion markets Switzerland, Munich, Berlin, it kind of just sort of fit. So we had a meeting with one of the largest gold suppliers in Europe called Proorum, and they really loved the idea. We went in there first because we didn't want to give them the idea and say, well, we want to build an exchange between they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. And then we we're like, we're going to do it with Bitcoin because you got to remember, folks, like back then, Bitcoin was only for drug dealers, just like the internet, actually, for the you know the very first people on the internet, it was only for pornographers. Yeah. And, and it had a really terrible That's name. Important. Like, what are you into pornography? Why do you want the internet? Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, like what? There's really good university. Like, uh, like it's, it's <laughs> but the narrative, what everyone believed was that it's just for drug dealers and stuff. And so... So there was a lot to sort of get around and, but yeah, so we took a year to basically build the exchange and test it. And the thing with Bitcoin, you can't move fast and break things you, mm -hmm. <laughs> like you can in Silicon Valley, because mm -hmm. if you break things, you lose everyone's money. So mm -hmm. you can't really build an MVP. You have to really build a quite a, a hefty infrastructure around it. And so it did take a while back then. Plus we were really inventing stuff as well. So it wasn't, you couldn't just take a library, JavaScript library and plug it in and hey, presto, you have a wallet. Really, you'd have to build your own wallet and own backup solutions, own multi-sig solutions for security. It really, uh, you know, we really deep dove. And, you know, we've been around since 2015 and we've never had a hack or any, anything like that. So touch wood, we've been security obsessed since the, since the beginning and successful because of that. Okay, so forgive me if I get too super basic here, but this will help 
me and, and the listeners no doubt understand too. And I'm going to ask this for when you first rolled out the first version of the business, yep. but I feel like it might not be that dissimilar from what happens today. Yep. I have a Bitcoin in my own wallet right now. Yep. I want to use Voltoro's service. So do I transfer my Bitcoin from my wallet to a wallet on Voltoro? And then how is that hedged against the actual gold? Like does Voltoro talk to a Swiss vault and say, this gold has now been, you know, bought this Bitcoin? Like how does the that yeah. interaction happen? Yeah. yeah, pretty much. So basically a user, we're a custodian of the Bitcoin. So people do, they generate a wallet address with us and then people send their crypto on there and then a little number goes boom, boom, boom to reflect that state change. So now your Bitcoin are stored by us. Now, for the very, very hardcore, I definitely think, and I, I keep always say it, don't use exchanges as wallets. Everyone does, especially if you're new in this game, but you shouldn't. We've never been hacked or had anything happen, but it's just better that the whole ethos of Bitcoin is to be your own bank and to take that few days to really learn about security of private keys. How do you secure digital assets? But yeah, so people people have that database entry. And then what we do is we buy good delivery bars, big, you know, either kilo bars or half a kilo bars. And then we sell those off to multiple people. So, but it's allocated. So what allocated means is that if we go broke as an exchange, we're not doing our business properly. It doesn't matter. Liquidators can't touch our client's assets because it's not on our books. Mm-hmm. And this is really important because if a bank goes broke, many people don't know this, but banks actually own your money. When you put money into a bank, it's not your money anymore. It's legally their money and they pay you some interest for that privilege. And they can go speculate and do all sorts of stuff with it. And that's why you can have bail-ins and stuff where they just don't pay you back. You know, <laughs> it's happened right. in Cyprus, right? Right. Yeah. So, so th- that was the point was to build this legal framework around allocated bullion. And then, so what happens is we have this gold. And once that gold is sold off to a bunch of people, over time, we, of course, buy a new one just before the last bit is sold out. And depending on the volume, we'll, we'll have lots more happening and it's constantly going um, and being sold back or so we sell to the wider bullion markets once people start selling off let's say bitcoin's right up the top and people start buying a lot of gold and then bitcoin crashes people start selling their gold to buy back buying the dip that's when we'll buy it back off the client and sell it onto the wider bullion markets and so there's there's a lot of cogs moving in the background but we are still the cheapest way to buy and sell gold of course, it's allocated. It's not gold. I mean, you can take it home to cuddle if you want, but we weren't built for that. We were built for a, a large scale, in and out, easy movement. Plus, if the stuff hits the fan, you can go and get it and collect it or get it sent out to you. We do have that option because it is your gold. You can do whatever you want with it. But it's, that's where it gets expensive because there's all sorts of insurance. As soon as silver leaves the vault, it attracts taxes and VAT and all this stuff. So okay. yeah, it's it's designed for quick in and out. And that's kind of it. Yeah. Okay. So just to clarify a couple of things, if not that it's going to happen, but if you guys went completely out of business, disappeared. Yeah. Any Bitcoin I've transferred to your custodianship, I'd actually just have the gold in wherever the vaults were that's associated with? or well, 
No. So when you put Bitcoin on the site, you then have to buy gold with that. So you need to place a buy order. So we have two mechanisms. One is a full order book exchange where you have an order book. This is basically a line of people that want to buy and a line of people that want to sell. Got it. And the people that want to buy. standard exchange. Okay. Yeah. Standard exchange. It gets more expensive as as people want to you know, move right. down the line, it gets cheaper on that way. And, and where it meets, they have the spread. Yep. And we've just recently launched like an easy buy and sell where the counter ass, uh, counterparty every time, um, because a lot of people just wanted to quickly buy gold and then sell it again. But we are implementing right now. We had it for a long time, but we rebuilt this exchange from the ground up uh, a couple of years ago, and we haven't implemented this feature yet, which is like an auto trading bot almost where people would tick a few boxes and it would, as soon as the Bitcoin would arrive, our system would keep an eye on that address. And as soon as it arrived, it would go and buy gold. And then, you know, now we're making that a little bit more advanced. And and back then in the day, people wouldn't mine directly to Voltoro and it would basically mine real gold with digital <laughs> with gold. Digital. It was kind of interesting. <laughs> That's yeah. kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. What a connection. So you could almost have, I could set up my mining facility I'm in Montreal, there's a lot of water energy. I could sit it next to a hydro plant. It will generate Bitcoin into my wallet at Vault Toro, which is then in turn turning it into gold, or I could turn it into gold. So my water could be turned into gold, basically. Which yeah, is yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Okay, so that makes sense to me. So really the main feature here was it's the exchange of I want to play with both a cryptocurrency and gold, knowing that I actually own the gold when I have the gold on your platform. Where does, though, the one part I'm a little lost with, obviously with Mt. Gox, it gets hacked, all the wallets addresses are taken by the hackers, so they get mm. all the crypto that was there, so they then disappear, mm. 469 yeah. million or whatever it was. How is your system, obviously besides the better layers of protection we now have with exchanges, but like you said, yeah. you know, Coinbase is still an exchange, it still has your crypto rather than you have it unless you pull it into your own wallet, right? Yeah. So where's yeah. the extra layer that, is it only because if I turned it into gold, it would be protected or is there anything else that I have no, so, missed out on? Yeah, so one of the things that I really put my mind on, initially when the Mt. Gox hack happened, I wanted to build a decentralized exchange and they exist nowadays But back then, there was only Bitcoin, there wasn't Ethereum, there wasn't these Turing complete smart contracts that could write complex, you could execute complex code on a blockchain. But Bitcoin didn't have the what's called op return codes, basically the programming language of Bitcoin wasn't sophisticated enough to allow for decentralized exchanges. So rather than that, I sat down and really figured I want to focus on transparency because, hey, what's the blockchain? It's this amazing transparent mechanism where you could follow the money and and see how much is somewhere. So what we focused on, rather than a decentralized exchange, which we couldn't build at the time, we focused on utilizing transparency. So we took the blockchain as an inspiration. So what we did was create this thing called the Glass Books Protocol. And how it works is that we would give everyone an anonymous ID. So we would give you an anonymous ID. So only you and us would know what that is because we issued it to you. And then you could log out. So we don't know that you're checking. And we would publish every ID code and how much Bitcoin that ID has and how much gold that ID has. So anybody at any time could check their ID and check, oh yeah, there's that much should be on my account. And we can't fiddle with those numbers because 
if we do, the sum of everybody's holdings would be out, right? So the first step is, okay, my thing is right. So I can assume everybody's is right. Otherwise, someone will be screaming and shouting on the internet somewhere because we have a lot of clients and they can check at any time. And then we publish the cold wallet addresses. And we had at the time this concept of a warm wallet. I won't bore your listeners with that. But basically, the cold wallet addresses, people could check the sum of everybody's holdings was less or equal to the amount of crypto in the cold wallets. And so this all of a sudden allowed people to audit us in real time all the time. But not only that, we had the voting facility statements, we have the insurance paperwork and the auditors paperwork in real time. So we could see how much gold bullion everyone has, how much gold everyone's got and make sure that also equals out. And so this was a real game changer in trust of centralized authorities. Of course, you still had to trust that we're doing what we're doing. But if, for instance, Mt. Gox had this, because the hack happened over a fairly long time with Mt. Gox, they lost a little bit of money, they sort of hid it from everyone, turned into a Ponzi scheme where they're trying to like get new clients in to pay for anyone that's withdrawing. And, and that mm-hmm. then just spiraled out of control as they got into more and more legal problems and had to pay this and that and just ran their business terribly. But if there was this Glassbox protocol in place, I think even the owner, Mark Carpellis at the time, would have been happy because even he didn't know that he'd gone into a Ponzi, that Mm. he'd gone into a downward spiral because it was just all too complex. Mm. So having this sort of grandma-friendly transparency allows for the community to give you a little (laughs) tap on the shoulder and say, hey, there's there's something not right. There's like a kilo missing, you know, what's going on or whatever. So yeah, this is how it's done. Okay, interesting. As we've grown, though, we have a lot of people constantly generating warm wallets or hot wallets. And so there's there's a little bit of technical issues there now with having ultimate transparency because we obviously we can't publish a billion different addresses mm-hmm. and have people check. But yeah, we're working on different solutions for that as well. Okay. And yeah. I mean, the short answer is there's no such thing as a secure centralized exchange, right? That's the end of the day. It's impossible to until, but it is decentralized. So now, interesting though. Then, Even then, because even decentralized exchanges, you have to trust the code. So with centralized exchanges, you have to trust the code. You have to trust the banks that they're using. And you have to trust the business that's the exchange. So there's three trust things that you have to trust. With decentralized exchanges, you only have to trust the code. Because even if you're a coder, you still have to trust the code. Like a lot of smart contract auditing firms, their business model is basically praying because, <laughs> because they can read the code, they can look through it, but they don't know everything. You yeah. know, this is what hackers do. They find the bit that you can't see the yet. Vulnerability, right. They figure it out. And, hmm. and so this is a tricky thing with complex smart contracts. And we're seeing it over and over again. I mean, we saw a few epic hacks <laughs> in the DeFi space because of this problem, right? Yeah. Well, I was unfortunately in Einstein Exchange in Vancouver, one of the, uh, I lost a bit of money there. And that was like, I just had the money still on on my, both in a wallet and just in their account with the USD. And I was like, wow, I I didn't realize how vulnerable I actually was. Just the owner disappeared. And much like you said, with the Ponzi scheme, I think that's what was kind of going on behind the scenes. It was moving money from one to the other based on whatever there was a call for money. But eventually, obviously, there's no more money to do that with and you're out, which 
forced me, as you kind of alluded to before, to really learn how to put my crypto in cold storage for the first time and go, okay, now I now nice. I feel now I feel safe. Except now I feel like I could lose the you know the key and the and the, yeah. the but anyway, it's it's safer than any, it could have been. I would like to maybe switch to the entrepreneur hat you're wearing. As the founder of Voltoro, yeah, well, maybe not <laughs> yeah. that one, but you know, <laughs> you you came up, and I think it was your half brother for Voltoro, and obviously, cool idea. Even as a basic idea, you just allowed a person to have gold and Bitcoin and just trade them as they're going up and down and try and profit on the spread, right? So that's that's yeah. a simple idea in many ways. Yeah. So you and your half brother figure it out. You get the either whether Switzerland or Germany, yeah, the UK, the gold supply, the communication between your centralized platform and, and the supply. And then you go and tell the world you exist, right? And you get your first Bitcoin deposit into your wallet and the first trade with gold. Yeah. How did it go? Like, how did you grow this startup? Oh, that was amazing. Like when we hit the go button, you know, we pulled an all nighter to really, you know, because you have this deadline of like launching and like things aren't quite ready and this and that. And we hit go and, you know, refreshing the back end to see like accounts coming in and people starting to chit chat on these forums because, you know, really it was still early days, you know, 2015. And it was just really exciting to see something that you've spent so long being built, being talked about. But of course, the, the first thing that comes out is like really, really strange because they would all of a sudden say, ah, oh, it's some centralizing. Why would I buy gold? Why would I? And some people really got it. And this is the interesting thing about Voltoro is of course it doesn't have the millions of customers that like Coinbase has or CZ with, with Binance, but it has this core customer base that really understands economics. And so what was fascinating is that these booms and busts that we see, there would be huge sort of signals in Fultoro markets showing that we're heading towards a peak that a certain little bubble is going to pop because the people using us were very deeply in a deep understanding of economic theory, boom and bust cycles and all the rest of it. Whereas a lot of other exchanges, they were just full of sort of moon boys that were just throwing money at anything and, <laughs> and uh, would sort of live off the, the troll box and, you know, chatting to yeah. each other. But so what, this what's was an indicator this though, like, can you, like, sorry to interrupt, but what, what's, what do you mean by an indicator? Like buying more like gold? Purely just volume. Yeah. Like okay. as soon as we started seeing massive gold volumes, it was the top. And sure enough, after like a spike in our volume, boom, it would drop down. And then you could also see as gold was being sold back off that we we're like heading towards the bottom. You mean in the Bitcoin price, in the crypto price? Or do you mean in the, yeah, in the broader market? In the broader, no, like versus crypto. Yeah, Bitcoin okay. versus gold. So okay. gold in, in the price of- So uh, they actually had a, what we'd call a traditional, like gold really was a hedge against crypto in that case. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And we had some amazing traders who made a lot of money. Like in 2017, would just put everything into gold. It would drop down and they would buy it back a year later. And it was extraordinary. And the other thing is in, in a lot of countries, well, in Germany specifically, there's like, uh, if you held gold for more than a year or Bitcoin for more than a year, it's capital gains free. And there's different countries that do similar thing. So people played it very, very smart mm -hmm. with gold. And, and so our customers, they're very astute customer. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely been an interesting ride. Of course, in that whole, like starting a crypto business in 2015, even now, 
is extraordinarily hard because we have employees, we have marketing, we have all the rest of it, servers to pay and gold suppliers to pay with, with fiat, you know. So mm -hmm. it's really, really difficult dealing with the legacy banking system who absolutely hates you, doesn't understand you, thinks that uh, everything is money laundering and drug dealing and everything else when it absolutely isn't. Like it's literally people that understand, I don't trust the banks because they're in fractional reserve. I do trust a chunk of metal that's sitting in a high security voting facility in, in Switzerland. So that's why I'm using it. And so it's really a difficult, difficult thing to start a startup in the crypto space um, mm. because of this. And I think this is the reason why we're seeing such a boom in the DeFi space is that, hey, we're not going to deal at all with banks. We're just going to be crypto to crypto only. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. and it's, uh, yeah, the barrier of entry is a lot easier in terms of this sort of regulatory capture that the banks have done. And the regulatory capture thing is a very fascinating part of the whole story because banks have built so much regulation around themselves. And it's funny because a lot of people, especially on the left, are like, we need to regulate the banks more. And it's like, have you seen the regulations that are around banks? It's nuts. Like the amount of rules that they need and paperwork up to here, every like, it's insane. And hey, guess who's writing these regulations? Well, the banks. And they write these regulations to basically protect themselves, to build a moat so that no one, no startup can compete because they just can't deal with that regulatory overhead. So the thing is, they had this for years and years. That's why like the term fintech is a very new term. And really, there was no true innovation in financial technology until Satoshi released the white paper. Of course, you had PayPal. That was kind mm -hmm. of it. You know, mm -hmm. PayPal was kind of the only thing, which was pretty revolutionary, I guess. But it wasn't massive. And this really exploded a boom and the idea of fintech afterwards. But yeah, it's a very, very difficult game to play building a startup in this space. And there's a lot of regulatory arbitrage you have to play. Like if there's a certain country that does something better or well, you need to then move there. And you're always trying to stay on your toes. And all of a sudden the regulator goes, no, nah, no, don't like it anymore. And or a bank just goes shut down. And you're like, why? And they're like, we're not obliged to tell you. And you're like, oh, okay. So okay. it's a struggle. And this is actually one of the other reasons why a lot of centralized fiat exchanges run off with people's money because banks, a lot of the time, this happens a lot, freeze an entire exchange's money and the exchange might have a secondary bank or it might not. And they're like in the background, keeping it all silent. And they go again, hoping that not everyone will come wanting their money. So they're like trying to like make stuff happen and they maybe open a secondary account, but that first account has frozen the money until they can prove whatever they want. Because mm -hmm. this, And banks really made a business model out of doing this to crypto exchanges because they could keep hold of large amounts of funds and basically, you have to jump through a whole bunch of hoops as the exchange owner to release those funds. And in the meantime, they're like speculating with it all. They're doing all the fun stuff that banks do with, with creditors' funds. Mm. And so, yeah, a lot of time exchanges suffer from that and you don't even know they're suffering from that. So, mm -hmm. But it, it's getting a lot easier now that regulations have sort of made banks be a little bit more on board with that because there's been reports for years for years, really strong reports that most Bitcoin activity, like most of it, a highly 
substantial amount is totally legit, that the tiniest amount is dark web stuff, buying drugs. But the narrative on the news is, of course, you don't want to write about the person buying bedsheets. You want to write about this cool story about this dark web, you know, like I was talking in the beginning, it's sort of fascinating. I was going to say, it's the same as like the energy side of mining. It seems like the, oh, it's Bitcoin takes as much as a small country to, to mine and then you realize yeah. how much energy another industry is using in another industry. We don't talk about that because it's, it's not as cool. But I, right. I'm, just to fill one gap, because you're talking about the banking system here, even with Voltoro, what is your interaction with the banking system? Like, Do you have to exchange the crypto into fiat to then buy the gold with fiat? You can't directly, there's no gold exchange or that will take crypto as a direct payment? No, there's there's a whole lot of things that we need to move around. So we'll trade it in other exchanges on multiple exchanges. We find the best price and there's a lot happening in the back end. So you end can't for avoid the bank, basically. No, I mean, there's a bank there on our side. There's multiple banks there on our side because we have to as a business. Mm-hmm. But our users' funds aren't in a bank because bank, yeah. they're either in Bitcoin or they're in gold. In the gold, right. But to get um, them between those two things, you need to go through the banking system still on some Exactly. Like yeah, okay. because the, the gold industry, you know, people talk about the banking industry being antiquated, but the, the gold industry is next level. Like they're still walking around with pages on their belt and <laughs> you know, and, faxing each other. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> beep, beep, beep. Oh, <laughs> like it's just weird. You know, they really in the, when we first launched Voltoro, one of the, well, we, when we first started talking to the gold suppliers, they were like, oh yeah, just fax us through the order and we'll look at it. And we're like, no, this faxing thing isn't going to work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're, we're going to have to help your tech team because we're looking at high frequency trades between a very volatile asset and a second not so volatile asset in comparison. Right. Yeah, okay. And so, yeah, trying to deal with that and crossing that bridge was also fun. <laughs> okay, yeah, well, I can only imagine. But I mean, we're no, we're talking in 2021, so I realize you've been through quite the evolution over the last sort of seven years. One thing I don't know in all of this is your monetization model. Like you guys as the founders, like what was the plan at the beginning and how you would be able to pay all these staff and you have to have so much compliance, no doubt, lawyers, accountants, everything is adventure back too. Is, is that was the other, my other question? Yeah, yeah. So we're running for a year and then we thought we better raise some money. So we got into Techstars, which is like a cool. venture capitalist sort of uh, accelerator launch pad thing. Yep an amazing system where they take people that have great ideas and teach them how to be entrepreneurs, teach them how to raise money and all this. So we got into the program here in Berlin and that really opened our eyes and our doors. And from then we raised again another round. The model, of course, is like any exchange, there's a spread between the buy and the sell on the market order. On the order book, we were taking fees, trading fees, but it was a struggle as well because People are used to paying really, really tiny fees because in fiat exchanges, it was fairly simple. Like we have to jump through multiple things, trade it on other exchanges. We should also add fees. And mm-hmm. and then add, so we had to take a, a bigger chunk. So the trades were a little bit more expensive. But for that, for the people that understood what they're getting, it was well worth it because we were still way cheaper than going to a shop and buying gold because the spreads there are they're insane. Mm-hmm. So um, we were still way cheaper, but for the crypto trader that was just sort of in and out, they were like, hmm, yeah, this is, this is too much for me. 
And, uh, and that's why we have like a core of really strong users that understand the value proposition that we're giving. And it's really helped a lot of people. But yeah, it's, it's definitely a niche product. And mm -hmm. this is why we wanted to um, now look at building out the standard, which leverages the idea of holding physical Boolean and go from there. Yeah, I'd love to switch to talk about how the standard interacts here, but just a couple more around Valtoro, because obviously yeah, you've sure. got more years there in, in time. Is it fair to say it grew, even though you said it's a small kind of niche user base, I understand why, but did it grow primarily through word of mouth? Because obviously crypto and gold, especially starting in January 2014 to 15, it yeah. would have been like on the news, anything that was new and, and well, maybe not on the news, but on the underground, on the forums, on the reddits, on the, on the yeah. discords and so on, right? So is that how you grew it? Did you actually have to hire PR and do a pay-per-click <laughs> campaign and all that sort of stuff? You know, we tried all that stuff, of course, but yeah, it was primarily word of mouth. Primarily people would say, hey, you know what? Bitcoin's going to a massive bubble and their friends would say, you should maybe buy some gold. But I, I also would always be on different podcasts and different TV shows as on Max Kaiser's show. And, you know, because a lot of these early people, they, you know, they love what we're doing. So, and I had, because I was in crypto so early, I, I knew a lot of the people that had influence in terms of shows and things. So I, you know, they would, they would invite me on and that would then drive more traffic. And yeah, definitely word of mouth and me being around. Right. <laughs> at a, definitely at, at like events as well. Like I was okay. always doing talks that uh, uh, people would always want me to talk at different events and stuff. So that, that really helped as well. Yeah. Okay. okay, cool. Yeah, let's switch to the standard then. So just obviously we've been talking for a while. People may have totally forgot what you mentioned in the standard right at the beginning of what it actually is. So you want to give us another overview of, of what the standard is and how did it come about? Because I feel like it is connected to Valtoro in, in many ways. Yeah, 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 it is. So obviously I watch a lot of crypto projects and one of my favorite projects at all is the thing that spawned DeFi, you know, decentralized finance. Of course, Bitcoin would arguably spawned DeFi, but in terms of the more next generation decentralized finance, the MakerDAO protocol was really what opened up the world of DeFi because you have these centralized stable coins like Tether and USDCs who have got apparently billions sitting in bank accounts and you have to trust that they are. And there's a whole bunch of risks with those. You have the fact that the banks could just decide to freeze the accounts and all of a sudden USDC couldn't get it out or Tether would like what's going on. Or, and you also, it's totally intransparent. You don't know, are they, have they got it? Are they liquid? Are they, you know, how many banks? The governments could shut them down and say, hey, um, a Tether was used for buying something illicit. So shut everything down. Mm. Do you mind, Joshua, just, just for the absolute layman, explain what Tether and USDC, like what is a stable coin, just so people understand? Yeah, so Tether came, it was the first sort of fiat pegged stable uh, cryptocurrency. So what they did is they said, we're going to create a digital token. It's like Bitcoin, but it has no real value. And we're going to say, when you come to us, we'll buy it from you every time for $1. And we'll sell it to you for $1 as well. In actual fact, it's 99 cents and a dollar and one cent, and that's their business model. 
But it'll always be around that because if someone's selling that more for like a dollar ten because they're on something, or for ninety cents, let's say that's probably an easier. They're like desperate to get rid of that. They'll I'll give it to you for ninety cents. Someone will buy it and bring it back to the tether corporation and sell it for a dollar and make that money. So the arbitrage, the arbiters will always go around the web trying to find where it's misaligned to the guaranteed price of one dollar. And that's what pegs it. Now, this was an amazing idea because what happened, and it's such a simple idea, but what happened was exactly what I was talking about before, where banks would just shut down crypto exchanges accounts and would not allow them or they'd go into a massive regulatory overhead. So instead of doing that, they would say, no, we're crypto only. We've got this thing called Tether. It's not money. It's a cryptocurrency. So we're crypto, crypto, so we're unregulated. And that's how they then grew. So it was a really great way for a crypto exchange to deal with fiat without dealing with banks and without all the regulatory overhead. And that's where it sort of came from. But the fact of the matter is, we don't know, have they got the money? And the scariest thing about Tether is that they can just print Tethers out of nowhere, which are infinite, and go and buy these rare numbers called Bitcoins or Ethereum or whatever, these really special numbers, which there's only 21 million of these things. So mm -hmm. they must be laughing, going, huh, we, we can just create these and go and buy these rare. And someone's mm -hmm. willing to swap this really rare thing for my like thing that I made out of nowhere. So not saying that, that that's what they're doing. I just say they're cool. That would be cool. illegal, assumedly, right? Like if, if that got found out, then yeah, they'd go well, to jail. It wouldn't, yeah, but there's also... <laughs> Counterfeiting money is highly illegal. So it's also a very gray area, right? If I'm creating Tether and saying that it's equal to a dollar, you're not. You're saying you'll always buy one. So, so that's how they get around that. Mm -hmm. But it's a very scary thing to have this massive. And just to let your listeners know, like JP Morgan Chase re recently came out with a, with a report stating that Tether now is one of the largest investment funds or the largest funds in the world up there with BlackRock. <laughs> oh. Just And BlackRock, like, you know, these are like the largest in the world, like crazy large. Now, I just want to clarify one thing just for the beginner listener. If I buy, if I take my 1,000 US dollars of fiat and I exchange that for 1,000 Tether tokens, yeah. the Tether exchange is keeping my 1000 us supposedly they're supposed to have it available as a liquid asset to back up the tether token but yeah. the kind of allegations going around here is they've taken my thousand dollars amongst all the other money they've taken from people and they can do whatever they might want to do with it like you said buy a bitcoin or buy a, a property in china or all kinds of yeah. things like that could be happening yeah and then Absolutely. if you get a call for that money then there's no liquid assets to back it up, it collapses. That's right. And actually, it's a funny analogy because this is kind of where fiat paper money comes from. Fiat paper money originally was a tether to gold. Mm. And uh, all these people would have this heavy, it was, you know, the people would have silver, they, you know, kings and queens would have gold, but the people would have silver, heavy silver. And so they would take this to their, like, let's say the Rothschilds vaulting facility in Germany and, and they would give the silver over and the vaulting facility would write a receipt. Okay, you uh, one piece of silver, here you go. And here's the receipt. And eventually people would just trade the receipts rather than I've got to go to the markets. I'm going to first go to the vault, 
get my silver out and go mm -hmm. then to the, like, mm -hmm. they were just saying, no, I was just trade my receipt and then paper money. And the, the thing is that these facilities got so incredibly wealthy, so wealthy that people would walk past these estates and say, that must be a banker because no king or queen could afford this. This is just mm -hmm. far too grand. And because they figured out that not everyone is going to come and collect their gold at the same time. So let's just write receipts and charge interest for <laughs> writing a receipt out of thin air. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, the, the start of fractional reserve banking, meaning mm -hmm. you have a fraction of reserve on the outstanding credits that are out there. But yeah, Tether could do the same thing. They just write receipts. They just create Tether out of nowhere and say that it's Tether. But they did one thing out of a report, apparently, in the last dip after 2017, where it went right down and they bought a lot of Bitcoin, fairly much at the bottom. Hmm. And so my feeling is that they're way overcapitalized, like by far. But my feeling is that the uh, USDC, which is similar to Tether, but USDC is a regulated stablecoin regulated by the US government. They have to have everything, full checks and balances, and they have to have all that liquidity. Now, they are going to have problems as soon as the US goes into negative interest rates. Hmm. Because when they go into negative interest rates, that business model breaks. You cannot pay the interest fee by holding this stuff in the banks for billions of dollars. The whole business model breaks. So they'll have to go into a fractional reserve, mm -hmm. a legal one. They'll get a banking license and all the rest of it to do that. But you've gone, then USDC stands for circle and you literally have gone full circle. You've <laughs> gone from, hey, let's go decentralized to like, holy moly, let's just have another system <laughs> that's fractionary reserved. And all that. <laughs> anyway, so, the, so what the MakerDAO did to get around all of this craziness with the banking system and with tethers, and you don't know if they're fully backed or not, if they're going to get shut down or if negative interest rates are going to hit. And what MakerDAO did was say, here's a smart contract, and we're going to allow you to put Ethereum in. Let's say there's $10,000 worth of Ethereum. We're going to let you borrow five, like generate $5,000 of a stable cryptocurrency pegged to the dollar. So you've got more value, provably, everyone can check there's more value locked in this smart contract than there is that you've generated out there in this currency called DAI, D-A-I. And how we peg it to the dollar is we say, okay, if you do this, you borrow from yourself. So you put Ethereum in, you don't have to sell it. So let's say, this is good for multiple reasons. I, I bought a car and I'll be like, I don't want to sell my Ethereum. So I put it in a smart contract and I borrow enough for the car. And first of all, capital gains tax isn't there because I haven't sold. I've just got a loan. And B, inflation is paying off my loan. Plus, I haven't had to sell and it's gone up and up and up. It's not good if the crypto crashes. <laughs> <laughs> but this is why you have an over collateralization because if crypto goes down, the smart contract doesn't liquidate the assets in there. I'm sorry, guys. I hope you're still with me. <laughs> I'm sure we've lost 95%. I'm struggling a little bit with this one. Maybe because for a lot of people, they don't even know what a DAO actually is. Like, obviously, yeah. that's the starting point for decentralized finance. But in a simple terms, it's just we're creating decentralized, I don't want to use the word institution, 
because that sounds centralized, but that's kind of what they're trying to replace the institutions that run all aspects of finance with a decentralized version of it. Maybe you yeah. can explain it a bit more through what the standard actually is, just how that connects. Yeah. So we took this idea and really that was launched like a few years ago and we've seen a whole bunch of issues with it. We're kind of the, like the next generation of this idea where you can collateralize smart contracts with crypto assets, but also with gold and silver and precious metals. And I'll talk about that in a minute and why. But the main thing was that just to make it super simple for people, if a pawn shop, P-A-W-N, if you went in, <laughs> just have to spell that out. This is basically, <laughs> you take your bike in, if you need money, you give it to them, they give you half the value and they get to keep the bike if you don't come back in a week and buy it back for a little bit more than they lent it to you with interest. Or you go back and you buy back and you have your bike. But this system is rather than trusting a shop to do that in a centralized mechanism, it's a decentralized mechanism where it's just a bunch of code where you send money in and it generates things. And you have the private keys. You're the only one that has keys and it's code and it's hard coded. No one can change it. There's no dodgy man standing there. You know, it's going to rip you off. It's just two plus two is always equal four. So you know the code, you know what it'll do and it won't change. So this is what it does. And so the standard is all about allowing people that have got gold. There's $5 trillion worth of personal wealth sitting in voting facilities around the world. So we want to allow them to take that, tokenize it into a smart contract. If they're holding maybe a few thousand in gold, they don't want to sell the gold, but the washing machine broke, they want some liquidity. They can put that into a smart contract, borrow against themselves in a stable cryptocurrency that's in their local currency. So we're starting with euros. So it'll be standard euro. And then we'll be branching out to standard dollar, standard yen, standard ruble, standard shekel, standard Australian dollar. And, and Let me else. ask you this then as an example. I have a million dollars in gold bullion locked up in a Swiss safe. I want to yep. buy a property in Berlin. I come to, in theory, I know you guys are sort of still starting it up, but it's up and running. So I bring it in, I collateralize my gold. So I somehow am bringing it to the DAO that is the standard, right? It's yeah. then turning, is it the full million dollars worth of bullion or is it 80% or 90% gets turned into a euro stable coin? And then I could take the euro stable coin. I assume I could exchange it on exchange for actual euro fiat. If, yeah. if the house seller would not take my euro stable coin, it would take my euro dollars yeah. and buy the property. Yeah. But then what happens? Like, Do I have to pay interest to keep that loan going? Is there a timestamp where I have to pay it back? How does it all play out? Exactly. There's an interest rate. And this is what really pegs it to the euro. So there's a whole bunch of people that have borrowed S euro, let's call them standard euro. And what gives that value? What pegs that value to the euro? Well, it's this interest rate. And well, we call it a stability fee, just like Maker does. But it's what happens is that if the value drops of S euro to the euro, let's say it's 90 cents to the actual euro, what the DAO will do, the DAO is like a, the whole community that govern the system. They'll say, okay, lift interest rates a little bit on everybody. So everyone that's got loans out there will go, oh, that's too much for me. I don't, you know, the, not everyone, but some people will say, I, I don't want to pay that much interest. So they'll go into secondary markets, start buying back S euro. And that demand does what? It Increases lifts the price, the price yeah. back to a euro. Now, if it overshoots to maybe a, a euro 10 cents, 
then the system might say, okay, drop the stability fee or the interest rate. And, and people go, oh, wow, look how cheap it is to borrow money from the standard. And they will then collateralize smart contracts and borrow from themselves, pump that into the market. And that will, of course, cause too much supply, which might drop it back down. And this is why it's called a soft peg, because it doesn't purely sit on one-to-one. It, it kind of dances around and is the lever of interest rates, just like central banks do. Mm. But instead of a few old men in closed doors deciding to like lift the interest rates, it's like <laughs> thousands of people all around the world in a transparent manner saying, okay, let's lift or lower the okay. interest rates for the that's good. That's a good example. I understand. So my million gold, which is then turned into the euro stablecoin, I have a, a fluctuating interest rate. So it might be at, at 2%, which I'm, I have to pay off, I assume, using whatever means I have to make money. So it might be my job or other assets. So I'm, I'm actually putting back in euros into, is it your DAO I'm putting it back into? Or am I just buying? Like, how is that facility? You send it back to the smart contract that you've got collateral in, that you borrowed okay. from. So it's not us. We don't have anything to do with We're just coding this thing. So the contract is just like a, an address. And it'll say, and you go to a website, and anyone can build an interface that will interact with this decentralized application. But we'll build the very first interface. So you'll go to the standard.io and it'll see, you'll see on there, okay, you've got this much collateral and you've borrowed this much and you don't have any time limit. The interest that you're occurring is basically just moving your collateralization to the cutoff time. So you always have to be over collateralized. The whole system has to have more value locked up than there is floating around. This is very different than the current system where we have zero collateral locked up anywhere and governments can just print more. So this is the the fundamental difference that we're doing here, that you can provably know that there's more collateral locked up. So, And what happens if it does cross that collateralization, there's a whole bunch of people that have put S-Euro into a smart contract that's ready to buy up liquidated assets and they buy them 15% under spot. So they get like a really good deal for closing like someone's whatever right yeah yeah okay. gold and crypto so and crypto. there's uh, these contracts are collateralized with crypto like eth uh, as well as boolean okay. from participating vaulting facilities that have plugged themselves into the standard right so for example your vault toro would be if i'm holding a million dollars with a gold in vault toro i can then say yep. listen i need to get out half a million of that for yep. an asset purchase i then go to the standard I connect my Valtoro account. It yep. pulls in half of my vault gold into yep. the standard DAO. It then shows up as collateral and as a drawable asset under the yep. European stablecoin in this case. Spot Pull out on. the money. I go buy my house or whatever. And then yep. it shows me that I have to keep making this minimum, well, once it starts reaching the point, if I get, if I'm worried, I got to keep paying down that interest or paying down the, the principal there. Right. And I, yep. I'm assuming that will be connected. Like it looks like a, almost like a wallet with, with like an interface yep. on the internet. And I would just possibly need to move fiat into an exchange, turn it into the stable coin for the Euro, move it, the stable coin into the standard protocol DAO. And then I could put it exactly. against the interest. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. And you pay got yourself it. back. And the, the great thing is like, over time, the inflation pays off your loan. You know, if you've got a loan for 10 years and you bought with half a million, you bought a house, and then in 10 years' time, that same half a million buys a carton of milk, 
then you've kind of paid off your house with a carton of milk sort of mm -hmm. value, you know? So this is the thing that, and a lot of people don't realize this. This is really financial education 101 is how do the wealthy keep their wealth during inflationary periods? And every single time it's because what you do is you go short the thing that's losing value, meaning you borrow the thing that's losing value, sell it and buy back. So for the listeners that don't know what shorting is, is everyone knows on the stock market, oh, I'll buy some Tesla stock because I think it's going to go up. And everyone, I can comprehend that. You can think, okay, yeah, I get that. That's how you make money in the stock market. You also have a very important mechanism in the stock exchange called going short, and that's betting on the price going down. How that works is, let's say, someone has Tesla stock and I believe Tesla is going to go down in price, what I would do is borrow that Tesla stock off that person with interest. So he'd lend it to me with interest and then I'd sell it straight away. It would go down in price. I'd buy it back, pay them back and keep the difference. And this is the idea of shorting. So the same thing when, let's say you're living in Venezuela four, five years ago, what you would do is you would effectively borrow a whole bunch of Venezuelan boulevard and buy physical real assets with it. And then 10 years later, buy back the boulevard, which is like now worth nothing, mm -hmm. pay the person that you borrowed it from back and with interest, of course, and, uh, and deal with that. Got it. So let me just to maybe a less extreme example in Venezuela, let's say <laughs> I, and this is very realistic, I've got Bitcoin at 50,000 a coin. Again, I've got a 500,000 worth of Bitcoin. So I've got 10 coins. I bring it into the standard protocol. I want to use the, the collateral to buy a property. I buy a property worth, say, 400,000 US dollars. So I've still got 100,000 kind of buffer in, in the collateral there, which I can yeah. use to keep paying back the interest and keep me safe, whatever the case may be. Yeah. But while I'm doing this, the actual price of Bitcoin doubles to 100,000. How does that impact? Yeah the situation I'm in. Basically, you can go back onto the site and borrow more against that because at the end of the day, it's calculated in the currency that in real pegging. time. So yeah, in real time. So now, you know, if it's the standard euro that you've borrowed, then it would be equivalent to the euro price of your collateral. So my $100,000 would be $200,000 like the leftover there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, exactly. So the money I pulled out because it's always been pulled out, but the money I've left is fluctuating mm. with the whatever the current yep. rate is. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Got it. All right. So it's kind of a way to liquidize very illiquid assets, still benefit from price increases. And like you said, you could hedge against ups and downs, if, uh, you know, short uh, and depending on where you like, obviously you'd want to not spend it all. Like that's also the risk here is you collateralize a hundred percent of yep. it. And then you're basically locked in because you spent it at that rate. Yeah, absolutely. You don't want to be liquidated. Like there's that penalty fee of 15%. The reason for that is because you want to market for people ready to buy those liquidated assets. Because when it gets liquidated, what you want to do is you want to take the euros off of the market because you get to keep the S euro stablecoin that you've borrowed. Let's say you've disappeared. But the system always wants more collateral than S euro floating around. So these people that buy these assets are basically taking standard euro off the market, buying the asset back. And when that happens, they get burnt. Those S euros get burnt or destroyed and the people get the underlying asset. Um, right, right. 
Okay, uh, maybe last few questions. I know you've been here for a long time, Joshua. I appreciate the time. We've dived deep into your history and, and, and also, I mean, my last few questions are all around the standard protocol. So let's first, I know we haven't mentioned it yet, but we'll put it in the show notes and we'll mention it again, but it's the standard.io if you want to check the current progress of this. And just so we know for other people listening earlier to Vault Toro, so Vault or Vault. T-O-R-O, vaultoro.com, vaultoro. Yeah. And yeah. just a few questions around the standard, because this is so new. Like all of this DeFi is new. It's trying to replace very trusted institutions in our society. So a big part of this is just a lack or of trust. Whichever. Well, yeah, both, <laughs> right? Like we trust them and like mainstream society will always trust the bank until they don't, yeah. right? But I am curious, even just thinking the examples we were giving with a house or, or whatever, and there's so many layers, like the pricing of the crypto, the stability of the crypto. If you're using yeah. something like Tether, what they're doing with you know the stable coin, uh, do I trust the DAO that you're talking about with, with your standard protocol? The, yeah. the interface, there's so many different, I feel like, I don't want to call them breakable, but parts yeah. I don't yet trust enough, oh, even though it's technology. absolutely breakable. Yeah, th this code is, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, You know, this is one of the things why, I think we've had such success raising the initial first round in this project is because we've had since 2015, never had a hack. We're obsessed with security and we do things slowly, but properly. And this is, uh, I think, I think what people appreciated. Yeah. But yeah, sorry to interrupt you there. Well, no, my questions are like, how comfortable should I be moving? Like uh, if it's, I have a million dollars net worth and I do want to keep it safe, but I also want to be smart with it and leverage it in the best ways I can. And I just don't know whether I trust anything in DAO yet. I'm having, I can barely trust Bitcoin because I can buy it on Coinbase or, you know, yeah. some kind of reasonably, now it's floated on the stock market. It seems like I have a regulated safe. It's not Mount Gox, basically. You know, <laughs> I've reached that point where we're Robinhood traders, so on, but we're not like, there's no DAO I know of that mainstream society feels like, you know, they don't have the app on their phone and they're using it to, for example, I could imagine it'd be amazing. The standard apps on my phone, I just go, I need some cash. I pull it out of my collateral and away you go, right? Yeah. I could yeah. I could run my entire life on just that one account potentially. And it's yeah. going all against my, I'm keeping it in Bitcoin. So I'm not, I'm getting the benefits mm -hmm. of that. So mm -hmm. how do we get to the point? Like, I guess that's my question here. Given all these things that we don't trust and we yeah. don't know yet, how do we get to the point where this swaps out the pawn store, the bank, and that's P-A-W-N again, um, <laughs> and, and the banks and the traditional lending and all the systems that we have in place now for you know hundreds of years, yeah. if not thousands of years for fiat currency. So how do we get to that point? What are the steps? There's so many scams in this space. So you have to trust that the code is right, that it's not a scam. There's a whole lot of bunch and people like yourself that have got great podcasts that educate the mainstream is one big pillar in this story. But the second thing is really having a solid grandma friendly user interface and that it's all about user interface because when Bitcoin first started, it's this ugly interface that was absolutely written by Satoshi himself. <laughs> and it's just awful, right? <laughs> it was made by technicians for technicians. But as you move further down the line, like when the internet first arrived on the scene, to write an email, you had to do it with command line. 
And you would have said, well, how's anyone ever going to use this? And now you've got grandpa sitting in his nursing home on his iPad (laughs) swiping all day long. And this is really what it comes down to is that things like the iPad focused on user experience and on intuitiveness and having no real manual for it. It's so intuitive that you don't need a user manual. And this is what it comes down to. But Without a user manual, you kind of need that education. And this is one of the beautiful thing I love about crypto is that it's brought the conversation back to what is money around the dinner table. This is a conversation that when they were going off the gold standard, people actually had around the dinner table. It'd be like, well, what do you think? Uh, should we or shouldn't we go off there? And people say yes, but there would be this big debate. And for the last 40, 50, 60 years, like, we just don't talk about that stuff. It's just not really mentioned. So it's had this renaissance of education just within the family. And because people are making so much money in crypto, it's like, I have to learn about this. So naturally, a lot of people are going out there learning, what is this? What is that? What is DeFi? What is... And and so that coupled with good interface, coupled with great education and resources like yourself will allow that to happen. But yeah, I mean, the main focus for us is to build what we have to do is build an amazing user experience, also partner with other systems. So we're already talking to ATM operators to allow the interface on an ATM to like draw out because... I think I saw, what was it? It was like 73%. I'm not quite sure of the number. It was something like that. 73 or 78% of all Americans, and I'm pretty sure it's something similar in Europe, are living paycheck to paycheck. And this cycle is extremely hard to break because they just don't get a chance to save. So I feel like these sorts of technologies that we're building, but other people are too, allow people to save, but borrow from themselves to have liquidity to pay for life. Mm -hmm. So you can do a bit of both. Of course, it's, you know, you do need a little bit of extra, but building mechanisms for people to save on a regular basis with their paycheck and then borrow instantly liquidity from themselves so they can live, but still save, this breaks these sort of cycles. And so I, I think there's certain things about DeFi that is allowing people to want to learn about it, which is really, really interesting. It's one of those great things about cryptocurrency that people really want to learn. I, mm. And it's also having a knock-on effect with banks. Like Coinbase, for instance, wanted, dared to want to offer 4% interest on people holding fiat. Mm-hmm. And the SEC was like, no, you can't do that. That must be a scam. But really what they're doing in the back end is using all the DeFi the systems, and in fact, for the folks that don't know, the decentralized finance space now does more volume per day than the entire fintech sector put together. And that includes these unicorns like Venmo. So the amount of volume is, is extraordinary. So if Coinbase was to do that and how it's doing that, because SEC was like, well, how are you doing that? It must be a scam. Well, no, what you're doing is in traditional banks, you put your money in the banks and about 15 people and layers all take a cut mm-hmm. until they give it to some clever market maker who basically buys and sells with your liquidity. And DeFi, you cut out all those people and just stick the money into an automated market maker yourself <laughs> and, and you gain those profits straight away. So you can gain 
like quite a lot of money just right. by allowing liquidity. So this is what Coinbase is doing. And the SEC knows that if Coinbase does this, that it will be a black hole. People will move their money out of every single bank and say, why would I store it with you, Deutsche Bank, if I can just bring it across to Coinbase and mm -hmm. earn 4% APY? Like, mm -hmm. it's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer, especially when Coinbase gets a banking license or whatever else. You know, Kraken has just got a banking license. Well, so I was actually going to ask you, because this sounds like the final hurdle here and the biggest one, that exact point you just made. The banking system, the government, if we destabilize the traditional way, I say we, but I don't know who we is, but you know, <laughs> if, if people start moving their money out of that and into even something as simple as Coinbase, because they understand it, they're really comfortable with it, 4% interest sounds great. It causes the biggest problem for the banks. It takes away their liquidity. And that yeah. feels like everything collapses in terms of the traditional sense when that happens. So obviously the government steps in and says, no, how do we get past this government hurdle? Is it possible? Do we have to go through chaos to get to a solution? Look, the thing is that the government can't stop this. It's just a matter of time. If Coinbase isn't going to offer, do you think that the SEC can really stop someone going and buying Tether, collateralizing some contract over Curve where they yield farming 3%, putting that over into an NFT, collateralizing something? Like, the space is so crazy, it's unregulatable. It mm -hmm. really is. And so we just have to come to peace with the fact that, first, the legacy system is breaking apart anyway. It's a complete fundamentally corrupt system. And I'm not saying corrupt as in there's a corrupt person. It's just a corrupt system, meaning you can't have more credit than there is interest. It's like a huge game of musical chairs with way too little chairs. And there's a lot of people that have to sit down when that music stops and it's not going to be enough space for all of them. So mm -hmm. this system is already showing the cracks. So they're blaming COVID, but it has nothing to do with it. It was already cracking massively. And to protect the value of the dollar, once you get into crypto, you start to see why the US was constantly in wars, constantly trying to protect the use cases of the US dollar. Because the more, you know, every time Bitcoin gets another use case, like, yeah, PayPal now accepts Bitcoin. It's like this big yeehaw. Why? Because we as a community realize the more use cases you have, especially large use cases, the more value it has. So if the US loses the oil settlement layer of the US dollar, it's a huge use case that gets destroyed, further lowering the need to buy dollars on the markets. And so the whole system is slowly falling apart for multiple reasons. And this system just happens to be there for people to jump into. Mm -hmm. So whether you are a technocrat and you just love the technology, you're going to get into crypto. If that's not the reason, then, uh, hey, um, you're some sort of like libertarian. If that's not the reason, you're like just an investor and you're seeing the massive profits. If that's not the reason, then you're an artist and you're just loving this weird NFT thing that's going on. And you can like, what? I can actually keep track of what I'm selling. And, and if that's not the reason, you need to get money to India and don't have a bank account. Like, Whatever reason you have, you're going to fall into the system that is building around. And thankfully, and hopefully, it stays decentralized. And this is why Bitcoin really, really, really fought for having smaller blocks. 
there's a whole big thing here, and I, we won't go into it because not enough time. I mean, they fought about it for, for years and years. But the, the fundamental thing is you really need to stay decentralized. Really, really, really important because it's super easy to like Binance Smart Chain, for instance. It's just a clone of Ethereum. It's amazing because it's way cheaper. Amazing. But actually, it's super centralized. So what you've done is you've sacrificed decentralization for efficiency and speed. Hmm. But what have we got then? We've got a system that can be controlled if need be. And there's a whole lot of stuff at risk from the legacy system who've still got a lot of firing power to try and control this thing. And and if we remember Napster in the music industry, there's a lot of hipping and throwing and suing and trying to stop things happening coming our way. I was actually going to point out China and wonder about your input there because obviously they have the levers within their society where they can say, we're going to make you disappear if you stop doing this. So I feel like they can take it in a very analog way. They can make the server farm go away that runs. And and I know decentralization obviously by its nature means it's, it's spread around across the planet. All these different servers maintain it or individual computers. But I guess what I'm saying is I feel like I'm going to answer my own question here. I feel like because it is so distributed, no one government can shut down the entire system. Yes, they could stop their citizens perhaps interfacing with it, with the threat of their life, basically. But yeah. at the end of the day, the system will always be there because somewhere in the world, these computers are up and running. So as long as we have electricity and we have silicon and computers, then these protocols and these platforms and the blockchain continues to exist and, and uh, it'll just be used. Spot on. I mean, the profit driver, profit driver is such an innately and powerful driver that we've seen proof of work that's behind the Bitcoin consensus mechanism, like you said, take up more energy than some countries put together just by adding some profit into participating now, what we're seeing in China right now is, yeah, they've banned proof of proof of work's fairly simple to ban because, hey, <laughs> it's pretty easy to see the mega kilowatts just getting sucked into one area or, you know, ban it. But what's happening is we're seeing like proof of stake, which is just a wallet. It's just got data coming in and out. If it's encrypted, it's just a bunch of data. They, they can't discern it. If you're technical enough, you can have a proof of stake wallet that is basically taking part in securing a network. And the Chinese citizen that knows what they're doing doesn't even have to have it in China. They can just log into it somewhere else mm-hmm. and have it run from there. And so this, it's a very difficult thing to stop. You can stop physical hardware, but networks, software networks are extremely agile and hard to shoot bullets at. It's mm-hmm. really like shooting bullets at a swarm of bees. It just mm-hmm. is dumb. So mm-hmm. yeah, and, and you're spot on, like you can threaten someone with force, but there's a saying, you know, that my Chinese friends would say, and that's the land is vast and the emperor is far away. And that's kind of the mentality a lot of Chinese people have is like, yeah, it's illegal and you'll read it, but there's a whole district actually that just does it. And it's like like okay. exporting money out of China. There's all these like controls, but there's whole districts in China that deal with just that problem. So it's, hmm. 
Let's see. Let's see. Okay, Joshua, we've almost two hours here. So I do, again, really appreciate your time and, and such a great doorway, I think, into many topics for the listener, whether it's DeFi, even just proof of stake versus proof of work, like you just talked about. We're not going to go into yeah. that right now. You can research <laughs> that yourselves, listeners. I just wanted to wrap up just with your own evolution here. You said you raised funding for the standard protocol. So where are you at with this project? Yeah, so we did a little pre-sale just to allow us to hire more developers and do some R&D and some really technical stuff because Ethereum is very expensive at the moment. So we're going to natively do it on a layer two for those that know what that means. It basically means that we can do it at micro cents, like less than a cent transactions rather than uh, for. But nevertheless, it's gotten us to a point where we can do this. The next thing we'll have is a private sale. And actually it's private because it's just anyone that signs up with us, signs up to the newsletter and joins the community and interacts with us and, you know, builds this thing because we're still a small project. We're still pretty under the radar. And so it's people coming in to our Telegram, chatting with us, figuring out, you know, giving us feedback. And for those, then will be a private sale available and that will help us raise enough money to build the MVP and really have liquidity enough to put liquidity into markets and and allow us to kickstart this amazing project. So, um, you know, we really see the standard as fundamental groundwork infrastructure for decentralized 2.0, DeFi 2.0. And so that's where we're at right now. So I'd definitely recommend people jump on to the standard.io and check it out, read about it and join the Telegram and uh, ask us anything. Yeah. Okay, cool. And just to clarify, when you say you're going to be doing a private raise, you're selling the TST token eventually, and you use yeah. the collateral from that to hire engineers to keep building and, and move on. But the yeah. original raise you've done so far, was that also selling TST or were you actually exactly. getting... Okay, so you've not, there's no yeah, traditional yeah. VC, angel, anything normal funding here. This is all within the no, tokenization. that's right. We have some angel investors and we had some VCs, but we really don't want huge whales. And we have a, a few VCs that have bought but their tokens are vesting over time since your, your show is all about vesting. <laughs> uh, it's, it's important that one of the big traps that a lot of people are falling into in this whole space is they're buying the tokens that the community have called it uh, rug pools, where basically large players will fund the very early parts of the project. They'll see a doubling in the price of the token and the team is excellent. They're building, they're kicking goals, they're moving forward. Yet the initial investors then dump all their coins onto a market, get out at 2x, and mm -hmm. it basically destroys the project because even though they're doing everything technically right, the price is dumped and they find it really, really hard to get that back up because people lose confidence. So yeah, we've okay. tried everything we can to like the large players need to be vesting over a 24-month period to 48-month period and depending on how large their stake is. But mm -hmm. yeah, TST is kind of the governance token of the whole system. So we talked a little bit about DAOs, we touched on it. It's a decentralized autonomous organization and, and it's kind of like companies 2.0 for the listeners. It's, it's a way that people all around the world can govern the rule set of a system and be rewarded. And this TST tokens are kind of keys to that door and these people set the interest rates and they get rewarded for all these sort of things. But there's a whole part that we didn't touch on, like prediction markets that we're looking at using as a governance model, because voting on things is, is kind of a 
I find it a, a silly way of making decisions. Um, mm-hmm. You know, everyone has their, everyone thinks voting is fantastic. And if mm-hmm. we didn't have it, we'd have dictatorships. But uh, I think there's other mechanisms we can use rather than voting. And so maybe that's for another show, but, yeah, yeah, <laughs> but sure. prediction markets are a very interesting <laughs> side of this whole thing that we're building. So that's where we're at. Last question, Joshua. What exactly is your day job right now? What are you doing? Like, are you, you CEO of basically like you seem to be doing now, going out on podcasts and talking about the standard and helping to spread the word. And But you, you must yeah. do something during the day as well to, to get this down oh, yeah. and running. <laughs> I'm definitely uh, working a lot. I mean, so I stepped down as CEO from Voltoro and my half-brother who built my co-founder took over as CEO. We were always sort of co-CEOs anyway. He was just more in the background. But uh, he's full-time CEO on that, and I've really stepped down to become um, Chief Innovation Officer, uh, we've called it, (laughs) at Voltoro. And this is why we focus on the standard to bring really another use case to gold rather than it just sitting there. We can allow people to do all this good stuff. And, And so on a day job, yeah, basically organizing, building the team, finding great developers and cryptographers to join reaching out to all my network around the world that have been in crypto and know what they're doing to join us. So yeah, everything from biz dev to dealing with all the normal HR stuff of running a business. Yeah, <laughs> And, uh, and now stuff. with a decentralized one, it's a really fun, interesting thing because you're dealing with people all around the world and, and communicating over Telegram and Discords and Slacks and things like that. So that's what I do day to day is uh, try to organize the team and yeah, okay, market. In timeline, what do you when do you think this will be like? I will actually put a download some kind of app and collateralize my crypto yeah. or my gold. I don't like to give timelines because it's something that's really hard to build, and we don't want to release something if it's unsecure. You know, really want to make sure that it's secure. But if I had to say a vague thing, uh, we're looking at about about six months for the MVP. Okay. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of R&D that we're doing already and that have already been done. We've already started coding. I think we'll get it done earlier, but that's sort of a goal that we're heading towards. I mean, we've seen projects like Cardano. It's been, what, four years, four and a half years. They still don't have a product running. So, <laughs> so like, it's yeah. a hard thing that they're building, that we're building. They're trying to do it properly. We're trying to do it properly. So it's just one of these things. Fair enough. Okay. Joshua Shigala, thank you for almost two hours. What a journey from being born <laughs> stateless to growing up in Australia as a this sort of designer to then a couple of startups within fashion, which sort of leads you to the cypherpunk movement, to then crypto, to being early in Bitcoin, to losing what you had in the Mt. Gox, to then starting Voltoro and getting involved in gold and, and Bitcoin exchange, to then now the standard. It's, that's awesome. What a, and still, and you know, early making days. making money stateless. Yeah. <laughs> All the <laughs> yeah. way to making money well, stateless. <laughs> that's obviously massive. So <laughs> any other websites besides the standard.io and voltoro.com you want to share with us or? Oh, I mean, you can follow me on Twitter at uh, J Shigala. That's J-S-C-I-G-A-L-A. I saw rant about all sorts of stuff on there and uh, whether you, uh, you know, you can engage with me, whether you, you know, agree with me or not. Awesome. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. Thank you. Appreciate the time. Hey, I really, really appreciate your time as well. It's been a fantastic interview. One of the best. Yeah, that was fun. Congratulations. You made it all the way to the end of that very in-depth interview with Joshua Shigala. I hope you were riveted throughout that and learning a lot. I was, even just being there as the interviewer, I was learning a lot. And uh, I really appreciate the chance to ask Joshua for 
basic examples to run us through how both his standard, like his own company or platform that he's building right now, and just other examples of where decentralized anything will play out or could play out in our world. Obviously, with finance, I think is one of the most obvious. And to be honest, I, I think it it needs to become a standard. I'm not saying that in jest with the name of Joshua's company. I say that as a standard across all kinds of different aspects of finance. I don't think it's going to be quick. We're going to take years, maybe decades to really get to the point where these forms of decentralized platforms are considered the norm for doing anything like lending or trading could be trading all kinds of assets, you know, imagine buying property, you know, with your cryptocurrency and then using that property as an asset on a platform like the standard to hedge against it as it creates to, sorry, not hedge against it, oh, it is hedging against it, but to actually borrow and using that property as collateral to extract more funds without ever having to go to a bank for refinancing, for reevaluation. It's all just done decentralized the software does the math, it just releases those funds and you can decide how to use them, when to use them. And even then, as I said, hedge against the value of your property by perhaps taking some of the value, turning it into another asset class. That might be confusing to you. Don't worry if that is the case. Just get your head around the basics. I think that's the most important thing you can do. Just understand what cryptocurrency is. Just Bitcoin is a great starting point and also what the blockchain is and how that is. What is that compared to Bitcoin? the Bitcoin runs on blockchain, learn what that means, how it works, and then you can dive in as deep as you like. And maybe you'll go all the way to the point that Joshua is and, and consider doing a startup in this space, or at the very least, start using some of the DeFi tools to potentially earn some amazing gains just on the asset appreciation, the potential for returns in interest. Uh, you could stake your crypto as a way to earn as well. There's so many ways to uh, generate cash flow and uh, appreciate asset value. Of course, not just the disclaimer, but just the hard truth about this. It is so speculative out there right now. It is a wild, wild west. So you can lose a lot. You can gain a lot. It can happen in very short time frame. So obviously, be careful and just watch everything before you dive in with any amount of money. Certainly do not put your entire net worth into this ecosystem because it is so fresh and new. All right. So I'm going to wrap it up because it has been a super huge episode. I hope you did love it. If you did love it and you think this would help other another person, maybe anyone who's new to crypto, this would be a great place to send them to start getting a feel for it and see two real examples of companies that operate in crypto and what they're doing and why they exist and you know what is the purpose behind them compared to traditional institutions that do the similar things. Or just to hear a great startup story in, in a cutting up space, or I should say an entrepreneur's story entering the world of cryptocurrency. Very, very current. Send them to Vested Capital episode number 26. Uh, you can also find us on all the apps. Just look for episode 26 there on Apple iTunes. You can go to Google, of course, with their podcast player. There's the Audible ebook player does podcasts as well. There's Amazon's version of this. There's Spotify, which is growing in popularity. So definitely find Vested Capital on Spotify and then subscribe or follow or plus sign, whatever the button is to stay in touch with this podcast. Get all the latest episodes. I have a lot more coming down the pipe. And of course, you can dive into some of the previous episodes as well. In fact, two episodes before this one with Joshua, I was interviewing Gabrielle, who founded Coin Rule, which is another crypto startup. So a different methodology or a different purpose behind what Coin Rule does, but another great story about cryptocurrency. That's all on the Vested Capital Podcast with me, your host, Yaro. So I'm going to wrap it up. 
Thank you for listening again today. I look forward to talking to you again on a very, very near future episode. Bye-bye.